You are listening to the Special Needs Children podcast with Chitra Iyer. Chitra Iyer is a parent of 24-year-old Shravan Iyer who has epilepsy, cerebral palsy and autism. She is the CEO of MFA and has been helping families with life-centered planning to reach their personal financial goals. She is also a trustee of a parent support group the FFA Forum for Autism which was set up almost 2 decades ago. MFA is an organization which was established in 2005 and is working in the personal finance space. They have set up a dedicated practice to help families with special needs children to plan their financial goals and invest for them. The thoughts shared here are as a result of the discussion with parents, caregivers, siblings and professionals regarding the planning of a person with special needs. In this expert series podcast, Chitra Iyer is talking to Ms. Jo Chopra McGowan, the co-founder and executive director of Latika, a voluntary organization in India for children and adults who have developmental and other disabilities. A writer by profession, she started this organization for her daughter Moy Moy who had cerebral palsy and intellectual disabilities. In this interview, she shares her personal journey with Moy Moy and what prompted her to start Latika, covering in detail about the services provided by them in Dehradun. She shares beautifully how one can advocate for inclusion in our daily life and within communities. Hello everyone, a big warm welcome to all of you on this expert series of my podcast for special needs children. Thank you so much for your time, Joe, the green to do this interview with me. Hi. Hi. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let me just introduce you formally to all our listeners. So, in this episode, we have with us Ms. Joe Chopra McGowan. Joe is a co-founder and the executive director of Latika, a writer by profession. She started the organization for her daughter Moy Moy, who had cerebral palsy and intellectual disabilities. Latika provides education, play, therapy, and fun to disabled children and young adults, training and mental health services to their families, and advocacy and awareness in the community. Joe is a college dropout, a convicted criminal, a social activist. and an avid photographer an american by birth she settled in india in 1981 after her marriage with dr ravi chopra retired director of the people science institute dehradun calling herself as a very ordinary person uh, jo believes that it is the ordinary people who change this world for the good that's a real lovely line jo and what a beautiful intro Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for not leaving anything out. Most of the time people drop the convicted criminal part. <laughs> I'm thinking that's that's a story we need to listen to someday. <laughs> so I'm going straight to my first question, Joe. Hmm. Um could you please walk us through your personal journey with Moy Moy? And what prompted you to start Latika? And if you want to speak about the convicted criminal anyway, please, please do do so. <laughs> well, it's a big part of the story, so I will mention it. Um, I grew up in a family of people who my parents felt very strongly that um, you have to 
you have to participate. You can't sit on the sidelines that if something is wrong, you have to do something about it. And if somebody needs help, you have to jump in. And so that's always been what I um, I saw in my childhood and in my upbringing. And so I was very young and going to demonstrations with my parents. We were part of, um, I was very young when the Vietnam War was happening, but um, we went to anti-war demonstrations. My parents took in all kinds of people. Um, we were Catholic and uh, my parents took their faith very seriously. So I was brought up with that kind of um, a philosophy. Um, when I was 18, I took part in a pediatra. My mine was from Boston to Washington, and it was for disarmament and social justice. And halfway along, this happened in New Jersey, I met a group of Indians. They were called Indians for Democracy. This was happening in 1976 when India was in a state of emergency and civil liberties had been suspended and people were being arrested. My husband-to-be, we hadn't gotten married yet, um, he was doing his PhD in New Jersey, and he was part of a group that organized a walk, another pediatra, from Philadelphia to New York. So his was going north, mine was going south. We collided in New Jersey, and Ravi and I met for the first time. And it wasn't exactly love at first sight, but everything that happened later started from that moment. I actually didn't meet him again for two years. I went on with my walk, he went on with his, and we had nothing more to do with each other. But he had taken my address that day. And two years later, I was arrested outside of the UN. There was a special session on disarmament, and some of us were protesting, and um, I was arrested. And when I got out of jail, I was interviewed by the New York Times, and Ravi who always read the New York Times, read the article, recognized my name, and wrote to me. And we exchanged a bunch of letters, fell in love in the mail, and we ended up getting married a few months later. And then everything that happened to bring me to India was because of that. So we got married in 1979. We moved to India in 81. And um, for the first seven or eight years we lived in Delhi. We had two children, two homemade children as we called them, and then we adopted Moimoy. Moi. By then we had moved to Dehradun. I um, told Ravi, look, you chose the country, I'm going to choose the city, and it's not going to be Delhi. Um, I just couldn't even imagine bringing up three children in a city like Delhi, so Dehradun was where I chose, and um, that's where we got Moimoy. Moi. And um, Moimoy was adopted. She was 12 weeks premature. She had been left at a hospital um, because her mother didn't want her in the first place. She was planning to have an abortion, got talked out of that, had the baby, but very, very early. And because of her prematurity, Moimoy was at risk for disabilities. And I knew that. I had studied midwifery and I I knew enough about prematurity that Moimoy was, you know, she was at high risk. And and yet something about the story compelled me. And we took Moimoy home when she was just two weeks old. 
and still 10 weeks before her due date and um, and began bringing her up. And I think that it was those first few years that really shaped my understanding of disability because even though I knew that Moimoi wasn't at the same, she wasn't developing at the same pace as her brother and sister, Anand and Kathleen, um, it didn't bother me. I didn't think about her as being a disabled child. I just thought about her as who she was. She was Moimoi. She was our daughter. And as she grew, we just adjusted. We knew that you know, she was not going to be an academic genius. She was maybe going to not even go to school. We weren't sure what was going to happen. But we just never put that label of disability on her. She was just our daughter who was developing differently from Anand and from Kathleen. And it wasn't until we put her in school that we began to think of her as disabled. When we put her in a mainstream school, which was the same school that Anand and Kathleen went to, Suddenly, all her problems seemed to um, become more apparent. It was like they they were brought into um, into being. Like we just thought she was funny. She was a little bit clumsy. She had a different way of talking. She had a different way of interacting with the world. When we put her in school, suddenly all we could see were the gaps. We could see she wasn't talking normally. She wasn't behaving normally. She seemed really, really clumsy. She was always uh, falling down. You know, before, we just thought, well, that's moi moi. And I think that attitude of acceptance of the child who's in front of you has been my guiding principle throughout my life. When I meet all the disabled children that we work with now, I just see them as they are. And I, I think they're fun. I think they're cute. I think they're um, surprising. Like they're just themselves. And I think not being a professional in disability at the beginning gave me an edge of just acceptance and just seeing kids for being kids. Um, when we saw how Moimoy was being labeled and um, not doing particularly well, and she got more and more unhappy in school, we decided to pull her out. And then my husband and I said, look, we're either going to start something for kids like Moi Moi, or we're going to move because there was nothing that we were happy to send her to in Derridun at that time. So we started a little school, and we began on opening day with just two children. And Literally, we used to go to people's homes. We'd hear there was a disabled child and we would go and we'd say, you have to send the kid. And, you know, practically force parents to send their children to us. But gradually, the word got around and people began coming on their own. Doctors began referring children to us. And slowly and surely we grew. Um, we had a wonderful woman who came from England to train our staff. and. She was such a dedicated, such a creative and wonderful person. Um, her name was Paula. And she had that same belief in kids that I had. And she just felt so confident that anybody who had the right attitude 
could work effectively with children with disabilities. And she trained our staff. She was supposed to come for two years. She was on a volunteer program and she ended up staying for 12 years. She became a huge influence on my children, on me, on the whole foundation and the way that we grew and developed as an organization. We can never um, repay Paula for everything that she did for us. She was an amazing person. I'm still in touch with her. She's um, she's back in England now. Um, but I think her belief in the power of ordinary people influenced the way Latika has developed and grown and influenced the way all of us um, interact with children, with each other, with people that we meet now in everyday life. We just recognize that everybody is different. Everybody has got some uh, some disability of some kind, whether it's that you're painfully shy or you're you brag a lot or that you're uh, you know compulsive or you've got anxiety. Everybody's got something that makes life a little bit tricky for them. And when we recognize that, we feel like we can accept people the way they are and work together in a harmonious way. And that's kind of the philosophy of Latika as it now exists. We're 30 years old. We have about 400 children coming every day, children and young adults. We start with kids at birth and we go up to 21 and we provide every possible kind of service. So diagnostics, assessments, early intervention, education, training, therapy, and very importantly, a social life. We have two clubs, one for children, one for adults, and they are places where kids make friends, where they have fun, where they interact with each other on their own terms. Our ki- our club for kids is for um, typical as well as disabled kids, and the club for adults is just for disabled adults. And um, they function quite differently. The inclusive club is, um, you know, just nonstop activities and things that people enjoy doing. No pressure. If you want to do it today and you don't want to do it tomorrow, it's great. No problem. The only thing that we insist is that um, participation is the most important thing, not winning. So all our games, all our um, our performances, everything that we do, however you want to show up is good. We don't have any winners. We don't have any losers. Everybody just gets a chance to participate. And the club for adults is like any club for adults, but these adults happen to be disabled. Uh, Nothing is being taught. They're not learning pottery or bag making or candle making. They're just coming to a club and they can watch movies. They can listen to music. They can hang out with each other. We have a cafe. They can eat, they can drink coffee. Uh, Eventually, I want to get it to be even more sophisticated. I'd love to serve wine and um, have things that are more adult kinds of entertainment. Um, I think we restrict disabled adults and treat them like children to a large extent, and that keeps them like children. And I, I really want to create more and more opportunities for people to have romantic relationships and 
interact with each other on their own terms without their parents interfering. You know, I think that's a big problem that disabled adults have to cope with. And we're trying with the club to make at least a place where once or twice a week, or eventually we hope that we'll be able to run it every day, where you can be yourself as yourself with nobody watching you and nobody trying to interfere with what you do. That was really beautiful. Um, what what you've done, what you've been through. I mean, with Marmoy, thanks for telling us about your own journey. And, um, um, you know, what you've been sharing about Latika is really amazing. Um, I, I want to hear more. So, you know, can you please uh, share what are future plans? What are you planning to do more in Latika? What's going to happen over the next 10 years, 20 years? How do you see it? going forward 400 kids is huge yeah it is it's quite much larger than i ever imagined it would be um let me just finish about moi moi though i don't know if you know that moi moi died in um in 2018 mm. it was a very mm. unexpected we um she was just a little bit unwell but she was unwell quite frequently she would get these chest infections and um by that point, she was extremely disabled. She was in a wheelchair. She had a tube in her tummy so that she could eat. She had a lot of swallowing difficulties. Um, she had epilepsy, frequent seizures. But we never expected that she would die. Um, she had a little respiratory infection, and she seemed to be getting better, and she just suddenly passed away. Um and I had promised Moi Moi while she was still alive that I would build a, a school, a proper building with, um, you know, everything that we had ever dreamed of in that place. And that's where we are now. Um, it's kind of my, my gift to Moi Moi and her gift to the country because we really feel that at this point, India needs something that is really, um, inspiring. I think we have lots of organizations which are doing amazing work all over the country. There are some wonderful examples of joy and celebration around disability, but we don't really have a building which makes it all obvious, where people can come and say, oh my God, that's for disabled kids. I wish my kid could go there. And we want that that kind of an in-your-face, amazing institution where people from around, I, I think actually from around the world, are going to come and see this as an example of inclusive design, universal design, a building that works for everybody. So we're not just thinking about disability. We're thinking about elderly people, pregnant women, uh, little children, teenagers, Anybody will come to this building and feel, wow, this is for me. So we're planning for blind people and deaf people and elderly people with Alzheimer's and people who just are, you know, they get tired or easily or, you know, everything is going to be um, thought through and catered to in this building. So we're at the plinth level now. We have the foundations laid and we have um, 
the, the walls are going up. So we're in the middle of a buy a brick campaign, asking people to help us That's out. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Wow. So this is a dream coming true. Yeah, exactly. So we've got lots, um, lots of big plans for this building. And Uttarakhand, of course, has nothing like this. And, um, you know, we, we just think that disabled people deserve something like this, that they really put up with so much, so many inaccessible um, places, buildings, roads, everything is difficult. And we want one place where they can just come and chill and relax and feel, yeah, this works. This is how it should be. So that's what is happening right now. We're also building our our own internal capacities, uh, getting more and more senior professionals coming in to work with our team and um, to help us to make our programs more effective, more family-centered, more that everything should be top class. You know, we want it to be um, a, a place where everything works well, where everything is um, inclusive and um, inviting and fun. And, and, you know, fun is really important. We don't want it to be grim or, you know, just effective. We want it to be like, people look forward to coming in, whether they're working there, whether their kids are coming there, or whether they are attending themselves. Everybody should look forward to a day at Latika. Wow. I feel like coming. I'm sure you're coming to see me. (laughs) Are you imagining this as a home, Joe? No. No, No, that's one thing that we always... um, have resisted. We've had lots of requests from families and from government and all kinds to do something residential. We don't want to because I think it's it's actually quite um, unusual that a child should be taken out of their home. And, and we don't go beyond adults anyway. We go up to 21. And I think that People belong with their families, and the Indian family is so wonderful and so embracing that with the right support and the right attitude, every family can look after their own children. And I think it's a point of pride, and it's the best thing for the kid, that they be at home with the people who love them, who understand them, and, um, you know, I, I just don't like the idea of an institutional kind of setup for disabled people or for anybody. I don't like boarding schools. I just have this thing that kids do best at home. And if, you know, if there is something terrible going on at home that children need to be taken out of, they don't need to be in a big institution with hundreds of other kids. They need to be in another small, loving kind of environment. I think small is beautiful, really. Mm -hmm. Right. So once your kids turn 21, when they become adults, uh, what do they do? What happens after that? So that's where we are working closely with families from a very young age. You know, we're talking to very young parents when their kids first get diagnosed, when they are in the early learning program. Um, 
that that whole concept of early intervention is really, I believe, more for families than for the children themselves. If the families have the right attitude right from the beginning and are thinking proactively, you know, I, I heard you speaking to a couple of the people that you have interviewed about financial planning. That's just one part of it. But it's so important that people right from the very early days are thinking ahead. And I think it was Viba who you were interviewing at one point who said, you know, don't don't expect people in their 20s who've just had a kid with a disability to be making plans for when the kid is 21 or 30. But we're beginning to adopt the attitudes that are going to help us work, live, enjoy, bring up this little person. And I think that the the thing to do is to move from that despair and anxiety and fear that a diagnosis often brings with it as as quickly as possible. You know, we have to acknowledge it. I know what I went through when I finally realized that Moi Moi did have an actual disability. It was terrible. It was a, a very difficult time. And I went through a lot of grief and uh, sadness and fear and like, what's the future going to hold for us? And I had to go through that. But that's what we're here for, you know, to help families deal with what they're going through in um, in the most nurturing way possible. And then, and then to move on and to accept the child who is there. So I think we begin that process very young with young parents and and they meet older parents who are much further along in the journey because we we work with kids up to the age of 21. Those parents are our best resource. They are the ones who support each other, who guide each other, who, you know, the same way that with typical children, you turn to your friends who are a little further on the journey than you are for advice and ideas and, um, you know, how do you cope with this? How do you cope with that? Just today, my daughter and I were out at a restaurant and we heard these two, they looked like they were good friends. One had a four-month-old, one had a 12-month-old, and they were trading stories. And the one with the 12-month-old, eight months further down the road, and she was giving this other woman so much advice and encouragement. And that's what happens with our families. You know, they, they're sitting together waiting for their kids or they're... Um, they're there in the evening program while their children are playing. They're all chatting with each other. And I see the kind of support that they provide each other and the encouragement and the um, the faith, you know, that this is okay. We can do this. And so that whole thing keeps happening. And then by the time they're 21, they've learned um, skills. They have got job prospects, they've developed good habits, they know how to help around the house, they know how to take care of themselves, they can take a bath, they can um, set the table, they can help with cooking, they can go and, you know, depending on their levels, they can go out and do the shopping, they can do so many things. And I think that when we begin very young with expectations that are uh, realistic, but also 
um, stretches. You know, we want people to have to work hard to to achieve something. And I think what often happens with disabled people is we treat them like children from the day they're born, and they they become more and more helpless, more and more dependent, more and more difficult. They're no fun because they they don't feel like they're participating. They're not contributing. And when we have high expectations for them right from the beginning, um, I think they rise to it. And I've seen it over and over again. Um, they're capable of so much more than we give them credit for. So I think it's it's that kind of a, an ethos that we create in our school, in our early learning center, in our vocational center, where people are expected to excel and to do well, and and they do. And so when they are ready to graduate, it's not the end of the road. They've been thinking about what's next. They've been thinking about maybe setting up a home business or working mm. with some other friends or getting a job in a company or working in a school or doing some gardening. You know, there are so many options that we have that are beyond Agarbati and card making and bag making. You know, people are capable of so much more. Yeah, very, very true. And, uh, you know, um, moving on from here, you spoke about, you spoke very beautifully about what you experienced when Moi Moi was in a regular school, uh, what you felt about uh, what, what people were only looking at. And uh, you also spoke very beautifully about the club that you've set up. Mm. And uh, now, Latika, um, can you please extend this and, you know, share your opinion? But how should, you know, all our listeners, whoever they are, parents, they could be caregivers, they could be professionals, teachers, anybody, anybody who's even thinking about uh, you know, how would you, what would you say, you know, how should they go about advocating for inclusion in their respective communities? You know, I think inclusion is much, much more than just about disability. I think of inclusion as a, um, I actually don't like the word inclusion because if you can include people, you can exclude people. And the idea is to me that everybody's already here and we don't include anybody. They're here. And it's really about recognizing that. And I think that disability is just one of the ways that we push people to the margins. Um, look at the, the division in the country right now, the number of ways that we, um, we stratify our own society where I don't hang out with you because you are not educated or because you are not as wealthy as I am or because you come from a different caste than I do or you believe in a different religion than I do. And you see people creating their own little exclusive um, clubs everywhere you go. The, you know, Here are the, just the Hindus and the Hindus of a particular caste and here are just the Muslims and they don't deal with anybody else. And here are the women and they don't talk to the men. And you know, you've got all of these ridiculous categories that are 
based on some meaningless standard that we've created for ourselves. Um, all the fit people, they don't hang out with the fat people, and all of the, um, the people who are highly educated, they don't hang out with. And, you know, so it's like there's no end to it. So when, when I talk about inclusion, I think about how do we just accept anybody that we meet for who they are and respect them and feel that they are as important and they have as complicated a life as I do. Um, you know, we all are so aware of our own um, thoughts and feelings and ideas, and we give ourselves a lot of respect. You know, we, we expect other people to treat us well, to, um, to notice when we're not feeling good, to be worried about us if we're sick, but we don't extend that to anybody outside of our sphere. So I, I just see inclusion as a much wider idea than just saying, yes, disabled people can come in here. Like that is so basic, of course. I mean, disabled people are already here. You know, when we talk about educational inclusion, I, it always makes me laugh because there are so many disabled children already in school and they're not even recognized. The kids with ADHD, the kids with anxiety, the kids who have undergone some kind of traumatic experience, who have been sexually abused or physically abused or their parents are fighting all the time. They've seen domestic violence firsthand. All those kids are disabled. I mean, what else would you call it? And, and they're all there in the classroom, but we get so worried about a kid with Down syndrome or a kid with autism coming in the class. Oh, we're not ready for that. We can't handle it. But you've got all these other kids that you don't even see. You don't recognize how many children you have in your classrooms who aren't learning well because of their disability, because they've been emotionally um, abused or they've just seen too much hard thing hard things happening. So I just think inclusion is one of those easy words that is pretty meaningless when you're excluding constantly. I don't like Muslims. I don't like um, Dalits. I don't like Adivasis. I don't like this. I don't like that. And <laughs> where does it end? What does inclusion mean? If everybody isn't welcome, then nobody is welcome. That's how I see it. Love, loved your thoughts. Absolutely. Very beautiful. You know, um, I hope a lot of people gain some different kind of insight from listening to you. Um, again, moving on. Based on your observations, what are the three crucial changes you wish to see for disabled children in India in the light of evolving services? I think that all children, I wouldn't say just disabled children, all children need a different way of um, being educated. I think that our school system is not serving any child well. It's, it's designed for a different purpose than helping children to grow and develop in the best way possible. And I think that the first thing that we need to do is change our um, our expectations and our way of functioning in our schools. 
because that's such a fundamental experience for children. And it should be an experience that is joyful and where children feel accepted and uh, loved as they are. So that, that would be my first priority. Um, second is for all of us adults to be able and willing to model the kind of acceptance we want for disabled children for everybody. What I was just talking about, um, religion or caste or background, language, educational level, all those things um, should be meaningless when we meet an individual. You know, you may have your friends from a particular category because that's the kind of person you want to hang out with, but it shouldn't mean that you don't respect everybody. And I think that when we can begin to model that respect for any human being that you meet, children will automatically start to reach out to each other more. They will, I mean, kids pick up from their adults in their lives, the attitudes that they, um, that they're going to move through life with. So if your parents and your aunts and uncles, your grandparents are rigid and, um, non-accepting, that's how the kids are going to be too. And, and so some children will always be left out and that, you know, that, is so easy to do to disabled children because there's, you know, they're easy to target. You can make fun of them. You can um, humiliate them, make them targets. So I think that it it really is the adult's job to model the acceptance that we want our kids to be treated with. So we have to do it first. That would be the second, and. The third is just to understand how different children learn, how um, there is no typical child. There is no one way of being in this world. And we really need to accept the, the range of uh, personalities and styles of learning that exist in, in the human race. We have such a wonderful range of um, abilities that I think it shouldn't be a problem. It should be something to celebrate. And rather than try and force kids to get into a particular mold so that they can succeed in school, we create environments where children can thrive, where they can participate, where they can be themselves and learn in and contribute in whatever way works for them. And that just demands a completely different system where you're promoting cooperation rather than competition. And in the process of respecting children, you begin to respect the earth, you re respect the environment, the, you know, the, the natural resources that we've been so blessed with and that we are disrespecting in the same way that we disrespect people. I think that if we could learn to respect our children for who they are, we would then almost automatically 
respect the earth, respect our air, our land, our, um, our water, and stop raping the environment the way we are destroying our kids. I'm actually speechless, Joe. I think you're just this wonderful. I'm so, so happy that you, know, you said all this. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and, you know, articulating them so well. You know, I knew I was speaking to a TEDx speaker and an author, but I'm truly, truly bored over with your thoughts. And I'm really happy that I had such an insightful, you know, and just an all-encompassing conversation with you. Your guidance on the changes that you wish to see for our children. Uh, I'm sure will stay on in our minds for a long time. I'm sure people will want to listen to them again and again. At least I am going to. And hopefully take action on these two. So thanks a ton. Um, this is this interview is going to help the entire community uh, with how to improve, you know, their own lives and the environment. All around our children or every everyone, everybody who's involved. And um, it, it's going to help our kids as well as every single person who is there in society. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks a ton. Thank you so much, Chitra. That's really sweet of you to say. You were listening to the Special Needs Children podcast with Chitra Iyer, the CEO of MFA and a trustee with the Forum for Autism. If you find this podcast relevant and interesting, it will be great if you leave a review, share, like and subscribe. You can also let us know if there is any specific topic that you would like us to cover. Feel free to email her on chitra.ir at myfinad.com or you can call her on 9833-785-892. That is 9833-785-892.